Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm here, or at least somewhere in cyberspace, with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. We are also here, whatever exactly here means, with our special guest, Paul Gorman. Welcome, Paul. Hello, chaps. How are we? <laughs> <laughs> Very isolated. Well, after problemas technicas, I think you're all worse for wear. But it's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. In our Zoom sort of celebrity squares <laughs> yeah. screen. Blankety blank, I think. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We will be talking to you about your career and about your new Malcolm McLaren biography. Just to say before we go into that. <laughs> Big that, Yeah, oh, brilliant. There it is. There it is. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it on my screen. We just wanted to say that the very sad news about Bill Withers came in too late last week either for us to discuss it in the podcast or to feature it on the home page we will be talking about the late great bill withers a little later uh, we will also be talking about two more great musicians who we've lost to the coronavirus hal wilner and briefly about john prine and we'll be talking about all our new library highlights but we're mainly going to be talking with to and about Paul so welcome again Paul you've been a good friend to Rocks Back Pages for almost 20 years indeed we launched Rocks Back Pages on the same night that you were launching your book appropriately about the music press in their own right so thank you for being on RBP all these years tell us where you started as a music writer as a journalist well, I'm not really a music writer, I'm, nor am I a music journalist, or I don't really <laughs> fit into that. Right, well then you better get off right to that page. I mean, if I'm anything, I'm a trade journalist, a business journalist, and that's what my training was. I was quite a feral child. I left home and school when I was 17 and lurked around a bit, London in the mid to late 70s. And then through a series of circumstances, I ended up as the only thing I could do was write. That was the only thing I knew. And through a set of circumstances, which I won't go into, I ended up as a trainee journalist at Thompson's Business Press. They also owned the Times at that time. This is before they sold to that swine Murdoch. Mm -hmm. And I became a trainee hack on a paper called Meat Trades Journal. <laughs> the sorry. Only <laughs> sorry, sorry, can we just have that again, please? Meat Trade Journal. Yeah, and so this was wow. the only magazine I could get a job on. I was really not bothered about where I worked. And in fact, it set me in, I believe, great store because I worked with really fantastic people who were all pretty hairy arsed and hardened hacks from Fleet Street. <laughs> <laughs> and they were a great bunch of guys. And I was very young, I was 18. As I say, I was quite feral and they adopted me and they looked after me. And so I became a sub, you know, I was a down table sub. I went to the printers in Chelmsford every week. I knew all about casting off and laying out and pickups yep. and cow gum and that whole world, set. And, and I was there for four or five years, I think. But meanwhile, I was living this other life. It funded, it was very well paid as well for a young man. And it funded this other life where I indulged my interests in music and fashion and dancing and clubbing 
and all of that stuff. It really just that. That's all I've ever been interested in. <laughs> and so they were a very supportive family to me. And they taught me a lot, really a lot. On the first day at work, I was given by the great Derek Chapman, sadly gone away now, to further fields, a set of 40 press releases. And he said he wanted 50 nibs, news in brief. And I had to call every single person on the press release, on each press release, and get a quote that wasn't in the press release. And so it had to be standalone and it had to be objective. And it didn't, you know, we were anti-PR and we were anti, you know, celebrating anything. It was, I was really taught a very critical rigor, an objective, quite sceptical form of journalism, which appears to have gone now. And so by the time I was 23, I won the PPA Campaigning Feature of the Year Award presented to me by Tina Brown at a ceremony at the Dorchester Hotel for Campaigning Feature of the Year because I exposed monopolistic practices in the food industry. Fantastic. Wow. Great. And so th- then wow. I was recruited by other trade publishers. And then by the end of the 80s, I started working for Screen International in Los Angeles as their West Coast Bureau Chief. How did you get that gig, Paul? I, I just went for it. It came up. and You just went I, to Los Angeles and presented yourself. Oh, no, no. Yeah. no I'd, been, I'd been to Los Angeles before and this job came up. Do you remember UK Press Gazette? That yes. was really the Bible. So you got that every week and you combed through there for jobs. But I, at that point, I had a job on another food paper. I had a company car, expenses, a really good salary. And I've been to LA a bit because I had some family there. And so this job came up. And so I, I moved to Los Angeles and worked there, basically reporting on the film business. Fantastic. And then when I came back, I became a freelancer. So that's 28 years ago, I've been a freelancer, man and dog. It's very interesting because in our discussions with our music writer guests, there's a real division between like the guys who came through the underground press and so on and so forth, who always went straight into writing about music. And the slightly older generation who did actually what you did. I mean, in their case, usually working in a local paper or whatever it is, but they would learn the trade of, the, of journalism. I heard Michael Watts talking about that. Yeah. And of course, Nick Logan came up that way. Yeah. Charlie Murray. But in fact, I look back on it now, and as you know, I'm rewriting in their own right as a yeah. narrative. And you could really tell the journalists who'd had some training against those who hadn't. And of course, <laughs> there was that great indulgence, which we, we really fed into as kids. Sure. But at the same time, it does lack rigour. And, you know, Charlie Murray's work really stands up, even for Oz, you know, even for, not Let It Rock, he was on another paper, Cream, I think. But uh, it really stands up because he'd done a couple of years, I think, at least at Harlow Journalism. Is that right? Is that yeah. right? I didn't know that. So I kind of gravitated to those people. But at the same time, I started buying The Enemy when I was 12 in the summer of 1972. And uh-huh. next door to me in Hendon, in the flat next door, lived Nixie Owen, who was a guitarist, I think, with Flying Saucers Rock and Roll, who were this great <laughs> yeah, I them. Ted revival band. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he went to the Wembley Rock and Roll Festival, mm-hmm. where all the greats, apart from Elvis, played, as well as a strange assortment of MC5, Dr. Yes. Feelgood, Backing Hines, Gary Glitter, Roy Wood, <laughs> Wizards were debuted there. strange assortment is right yeah (laughs) yeah well fantastic Mm. so this was very exciting to me because this was just a couple of miles from where i was brought up right and also it was in the first underground 
paper I bought, which was Friends, yeah, yeah. It was covered in there, which had published stuff by Nick Kent. So by the time I kind of come out of the wash of the trade press, I'd absorbed all of this stuff. And I was reading voraciously as well. Uh-huh. And so I then chose to write about what I wanted to write about. Not like that was going to, going to be sort of, I suppose, the next question. How did you get into writing about what you, you've, now, you've chosen to write about? When I came back and I was freelancing, yeah. I got a gig as editor-at-large with Music Week, right. the yeah. industry. Again, that industry thing, because I was always fascinated, and it's, it comes out in my work, by the people behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So the managers. So I went on the road with you too, but I shadowed Paul McGuinness. Right. I did meet the blokes in the band, yeah, yeah. but I was far more interested in how <laughs> this guy could walk around Prague, a former army grounds in Prague, in a three-piece tweed suit in the height of summer. And they, it was like a military campaign, that tour, which was the pop tour, which I think it's 96, 95. Sure. And they would have 200 people with them and they'd pick up 200 people every three days in a new venue. <laughs> and he was like Lord God, King of it all, mm-hmm. in control of this massive thing. That fascinates me far more, I'm afraid to say, than some bloke playing the same three chords that I'd heard ever since I was a kid. Although you did, of course, do the very first interview with the Spice Girls, Paul. And that's I did, yeah. <laughs> again, again, as a business journalist, you know. Yes, it was a sort of business piece. It's a great yeah. little piece about how they put themselves together in this house in Maidenhead. They all shared this house and they conceptualised this idea of the Spice Girls, that they weren't going to be a girl group that all wore similar clothes. They were all going to have their own identities and sartorial personalities. It's really interesting. And you talked to a guy at Virgin Records who signed them. Ashley, yeah. Yeah, Ashley Newton. And so it's very much a kind of Music Week piece rather than, you know, say, an NME piece. I never worked for the enemy. I never... No, no, never, exactly. I did no. one piece for them, which was when I was in LA, an interview with McLaren. <laughs> oh, well, well, and we'll get on get to on that. To that yeah. But the first I knew of you... I mean, if I'd known that you'd been driving around Los Angeles in a company car, I think I'd have treated you with more respect when you pitched pieces <laughs> to me at Mojo. That's so, and, right. And <laughs> that's the first I knew of you, just this Gorman chat pitching pieces that sounded rather interesting and one of them we see that that was the thing was that they were never about per se music yeah if you see what i mean it was about the culture around it so one of the first pieces you commissioned was about the rise of those alternative magazines ben is dead maximum rock and roll forced exposure forced exposure and my favorite one which was i killed robert Criscow with my big fucking dick thank god you said (laughs) thank god you said that and i didn't have to because i was i was limbering up to say it and what was that piece about no it was a title of a magazine Ah. an alternative magazine Ah. (laughs) Uh, you mentioned mclaren so just i mean how what was this piece that you wrote about mclaren he was pitching at the time this was towards the end of his time in hollywood and he was there for a long time he was there for five six years in which time he made the great waltz darling album and did other stuff he was never a single track person but he was pitching hard a film biopic of peter grant yes and also another one a companion one and the 
Peter Grant one was really about the roots of the music business and rock and roll mm-hmm. in criminality. Yeah. And he was pitching the Brian Epstein biopic, which was about the dark sexual undertones of the mu- which had kind of been a, a current in the music Absolutely. at the yeah. same time. Yes. And so we got on, because I'd met him when I was 15 in the mid-70s, and I'd seen him around, and then we got on because, you know, we were Anglos in L.A. You know what it's like, Barney. Mm. You mm. do kind of tend... I never went to that thing of playing in a cricket team or drinking in the dog and duck or something. Or playing in Rod Stewart's football pitch. Exactly. <laughs> no, I did, play, I did play with some of those guys. You must have done as well, because <laughs> there were very few people there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's very funny. I mean, you've written a lot of books, Paul, and you've also created a real niche for yourself as this expert, curator, consultant on areas of fashion and style, particularly in, in London. So you have a kind of unique niche in pop culture. And, you know, congratulations for all Thank that. You. And so we come to your your new tome, The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. So was this, was McLaren a subject that had been on your mind for a while? Tell us about the genesis of the project. Well, I always had a fascination for those people who were either underappreciated or misinterpreted. And it kind of worked by praxis with me because I, I realized by about my fourth or fifth book, oh, that's really what I'm doing. So the look, my first book, was really about the Lansky brothers, first-generation Armenian Jewish clothing retailers who sold Elvis the look of rock and roll. On Beale Street. Yeah, on Beale Street. And so that book was all about, you know, talking about those people who I think had been Mm underappreciated. And then if I go through the work, the In Their Own Right, really, I wanted to celebrate people like Caroline Koo, who really dedicated the countercultural energy that she and experience and resource that she'd put together in the 60s to the melody maker and was really without her i think the coverage of punk would have been quite different mm-hmm. so there again you know there were people like nick kent who were less celebrated in those days and then through the barney bubbles book my book about the design entrepreneur tommy roberts the artist so it's always been that But McLaren was kind of a big figure in that because I do think that he's misunderstood. And I thought that he needed contextualising in a wider sense than present company accepted. Music journalists had tended to approach him before because they didn't particularly like him. Mm. He could wind people up, but there seemed to be a strand of white male music journalist who really took again him mm. and I think that he suffered from being pigeonholed in a particular way whereas you know if I may say I understood him through the prism of I've written a lot about design and art yeah, and yeah. interiors mm. and the wider sort of counterculture as well I understood him much more as that creature and I thought it was time you know, I got commissioned six years ago. It took six years to write in between all this other stuff that I've been doing. I understood that it was time really to reposition, not not in a sort of aggrandizing way, but more to kind of say, this is why I think this person is important. Yeah. You might also understand it. I, I mean, look, you you speak for me, among others, in that I did find him, not I, I never met him, 
but I found him pretty obnoxious and incredibly arrogant. It's interesting, isn't it? You never met him. No, but that was the received sense one had of him, that he was incredibly arrogant and pretty obnoxious. And I mean, yeah, sort of brilliant in his way and important and all of that, but not someone that I would ever have really wanted to hang out with. Now, listening to the, so the audio interview is with McLaren this week. It's John Tobler speaking to him in 1989. And actually, I warmed to him a bit more listening to it. You know, even though he's making these great gnomic pronouncements on, on the music industry and pop culture, actually, he's a little more charming and endearing than he was at the height of his kind of pistols infamy. Shall we just hear the first of the clips, Mark? This is actually quite late on in, in the interview, and it, he talks about becoming an artist, and he sort of makes the statement in this, well, you'll hear it, but that actually being a manager is as artistic as anything else in a curious kind of way. Let's have a listen. Did you become an artist yourself because you just felt that there was another, nobody there? I felt it was more entertaining, ultimately. Yeah. Because I always was, and it was just I came out of the closet. I think that, you know, it was by default that I ended up managing groups. I wasn't really a manager, I was more of a charlatan actor. But in reality, but the reality perceived me as someone else. And I never forget Richard Branson's words at Virgin, you know. That man, I understand why that group is so terrified and so angry at him and so this and the other. I understand it because I, I, Richard Branson, would never be managed. I'd be terrified of being managed by Malcolm McLaren because he doesn't live in reality. He lives in his own world. Well, name me an artist who doesn't, Richard, darling. Name me one. All over the world, high school girls take to the ropes and turn them slow. Starts a beat and a loop. They skip and jump through the loop. They might break and they might fall, but they <laughs> <laughs> And you can see the point. I mean, choice. do you want to talk further about the audio, Bonnie? Let's just return to sure. Paul's mission, in a sense, to reposition Malcolm McLaren. Paul, I mean, did you like him? I mean, it sounds to me like you, like you say, you understood him. Perhaps you did like him more than than others did. Enormously, I liked him a lot. I found him a very generous and encouraging presence, and he was incredibly funny. He was also quite childlike in his own way. Alan Moore, who wrote the introduction to my book, who put together the script for Fashion Beast, an unmade film in the eighties, talks about this. McLaren said to me once that he didn't believe that he, he called himself a, a charlatan. But he didn't believe anybody would take him seriously because a charlatan doesn't reveal themselves as a charlatan, if you see what I mean. They don't dub themselves the embezzler. I agree. It's a very strange thing to say. I love that phrase. I think of myself as a charlatan actor. But he had the heart and the vision of an artist. He was at eight years at art schools and it's been severely rewritten, that part of his history, because he studied art history. He went to all the classes. I remember once I met Robin Scott, you know, who became M, who was at Croydon art school with him and he said yeah he was forever rushing to lectures you know not like the rest of us sitting around smoking pot <laughs> he was very very interested and some of his postcards from the south of france in 1968 
they really reveal his interest in all the arts. He talks about Le Mapri, the, the masterpiece film, he talks about Indian films that are being shown, the living theatre. And so he was this incredibly sponge-like creature who absorbed every type of creative expression and then churned it out. I wanted to ask to what extent you think that that arrogant image was cultivated by him as a character as much as it was, you know, because, I mean, he does have that image. For me, looking back without, you know, having been there, as it were, he does seem in the popular conception, at least from the musical perspective, as you were saying, to be that kind of arrogant guy. But do you think he cultivated that himself to an extent? I think he adopted various personas. If you look at his background, he had a very, very difficult upbringing, like really difficult. I mean, you wonder about David Bowie sometimes as well and the relationship with the mother and stuff like that and how he, you know, it's a really weird thing to do. It's not just showbiz. Mm -hmm. He's kind of inhabiting persona, isn't he, until he almost crashes himself as the thin white duke. I think McLaren was of, of a similar cut in that he adopted various different personae to really defend himself because he was that abandoned, rejected child. Mm. He was that basically abused mm. child by his grandmother. And I'm not excusing, I'm not saying, hey, you know, I didn't get enough love as a child, so I'm a bastard. What I'm saying is I think it explains he built this carapace around himself, which eventually started to crumble mm -hmm. as he came to terms with himself in the noughties. Mm. And that's, for me, when he created some of his greatest artworks. The final film installations were, you know, greeted with great admiration on the international fine art circuit. They were collected. And, you know, he was definitely, you know, realising his creative vision in a much more form. Is, is there anything that he did that you disapprove of wholly? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's some very misguided things that he did. Mm -hmm. And you get this with those people sure. as well, that... that churning out ideas all the time. I happened to be at Chelsea College of Art on the day the, the news broke of his death, 10 years ago oh, right. yesterday. And in the company was Mick Jones of The Clash and BAD. And he said, oh, that's really sad because all those ideas have gone. We'll never hear mm -hmm. what his latest idea is, whether good, bad or indifferent. Right. So I think he made several miscalculations. I think for himself, in not nurturing John Lydon and looking after him. Mm -hmm. He much preferred Sid Vicious. And in fact, as you'll see in my book, he really tried to save Sid. He was on the first flight to New right. York. He organised bail. He went round these lawyers, including Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wineish. But he met him. You know, he went to hippie lawyers recommended by Allen Ginsberg. Mm. But, you know, things like Chicken, yeah. which was yeah. a magazine for young teenage pop fans were kind of on the money in that it was a parallel with it was a much edgier smash hit yeah. and the idea he actually had was a great marketing idea was that cassettes were the thing because they gave mobility mm -hmm. and it's that whole thing about piracy and you know the consumer making the choices not being directed by corporations and so he wanted to feature the cassette as a cover man yeah. and then sell music through news agents and garages. Right. Yeah. What a genius yeah, idea. Yeah. But then, of course, he fucks it up by calling it chicken and going on about porn for kids. Yeah. He never really meant yeah, that. Yeah, sure. You know, it was just... And I think also in the wake of the pistols, he made a lot of bad choices because I think he had a crisis. Yeah. I think if you look at most of them, you know, most of the band became, you know, a heroin addict and an alcoholic. 
you but, know, kind of is pricey. It, isn't one of the problems with him, though, is that as a manager, and I know that being a, a manager of bands is only a small part of, of who he was, but he's endlessly looking for people who he could effectively manipulate and really wasn't tolerant of personalities within these bands who could actually challenge him in any way. Well, I think his his answer to that would be, you know, do you want to get on the bus and go for a ride or not? Sure. John Lydon, do you want to remain, you know, a Herbert, you know, great guy, fantastic, but do you want to remain a Herbert teaching disenchanted, disadvantaged kids, you know, in the summer, or do you want to become the leader mm-hmm. and the front man? So he was an incredible enabler, but with that came undoubtedly a lack of empathy. I think that's one of the things that we see about him. But he always said that, and it sounds pretentious and harsh, but he always said that the vision was the thing. Mm. And if people got hurt, then so be it. I mean, I'm not saying he's a nice guy. Picasso wasn't a nice guy. (laughs) Andy Warhol wasn't a nice guy. I'm not saying also that he's on there on the par with them but i think that he enabled far more people than he hurt sure so the piece that you the excerpt you furnished us with so kindly oh yes yeah. is, is actually just a, a fascinating little snapshot i mean i'm not oh, I you like it i i thought it's great and i learned so much i mean i've not i've not read right. every it was really piece interesting of literature so this little kind of window into what happened before Lydon even came on the scene is really interesting. I didn't know about this David Harrison guy who was briefly considered to be a possible lead singer for Cutie Jones and the Sex Pistols. It's also just, it's 1975 and it's everything that's sort of rumbling around in Malcolm's head before Lydon comes on the scene and the Pistols come together properly. I found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, David, somebody wrote, I posted something about him on Instagram and somebody, there's a lot of people who are obsessed with that period of punk and think they know everything. And I'm not, you know, that's great. But they were saying, oh, it must be so sad for him being obscure. He didn't give a shit about that. He's one of our great British artists. He's represented <laughs> by Victoria Mira Gallery. <laughs> you know, he is his own person yeah. and not defined by that moment. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it's interesting, isn't it, that Malcolm recognised something in him. Mm-hmm. And he gave him a shot a year later with the Masters of the Backside, <laughs> the, the group that became the town. <laughs> weird, weird Chrissy Hine, Dave Vane, right. Rat Scabies. And so he kept at it. And, you know, you read about encounters. Vic Goddard from Subway Sec met McLaren at a gig. He said, you look like you guys should be in a band. He paid for their rehearsals. Yeah. He went up to Rat Scabies at a Pink Fairies gig at Dingwalls and said, I hear you're a really good drummer. And so then the next day, he and Chrissy went round and visited Rat. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's this constant... Uh, and I think misinterpreted, but there's a kind of generosity to that yeah. that you don't see in many a other music of facilitation of yeah yeah good word yeah. My only kind of time I can remember being in the same room as him is when the Pistols played my arts. I was at Chelsea Art School in 1975, and they played in like November 75, and it was a kind of you know pretty small crowd. And Johnny Rotten was telling us we were all too old, even though he's, he's exactly one day older than me. But <laughs> I remember turning around. And even though I'd walked past his shop every day, I'd never seen McLaren. He never hung out. He never went to the Roebuck pub, for example. So, he did. Did he? That's where I met I'd him. Never, yeah. I never saw him All down the time. there. Anyway, oh, yeah. and I just remember this guy by the mixing desk, just not looking at the band, studying the audience. He was just constantly from looking to see mm. how we were reacting, which 
wasn't very well. <laughs> Mark, should we have another helping of, of multi-audio? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the next bit... Actually, this is... this is He's now... This is 1989, this interview. It's John Tobler. And he's talking very much the conversations about the music business as it stood in 1989. And he's talking about how the artists were becoming indistinguishable from the A&R men who had signed them. Let's have a listen. In order to, for a new artist to exist in that kind of process, he has to fit in very well. And in that sort of process, you get a very pragmatic simple artist who really doesn't look any different from the guy who's signing him. <laughs> he behaves the same, he has similar tastes, they often play, would play cricket together, they've both got mortgages and live next door. It's one giant, dreadful, boring, happy family. And I, I, I love that because it's—he's actually absolutely right. When you think of, if you think think about when it was, nineteen eighty-nine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely on the money. There was great music coming out of Manchester. Obviously, there was Acid House happening, but it wasn't being controlled by the major labels. What did they have? Tanita Tickerer. Two words: go west. I mean, they're the archetype <laughs> of the band who were exactly like the people who signed them. I met one of them in L.A. actually once. I mean, they made a bunch <laughs> of money out of that and then just retired at the age of 28. Yeah, or something. Well, <laughs> well, good for them. But they were, they were exactly what McLaren's talking about there, I think. Yeah, exactly. What I learned that I thought was just really interesting on a personal level is that that disillusionment partly led McLaren to discover 8-bit chip tune <laughs> i was reading about this he wrote a piece about how 8-bit was the new punk for wired magazine yeah yeah, yeah. for wired magazine that's exactly the one that i yeah. just happened upon in my <laughs> research before recording this and i just thought that was fascinating because that is so left field from what you might expect someone in his position to go after because it's not his generation and not his scene and not his technology but he did somehow want to f- find something that was new to him. And I think that's kind of remarkable in, in itself because, I mean, chiptune is much maligned and much, you know, but there is something to it where it is a, sure. a rebellion against Pro Tools, against high-quality recording, against this sort of glitzy, sure. glamorous pop thing. That's right. He said when he, when he met one of the musicians, what most impressed him, he, he was wearing a T-shirt which said, fuck Pro Tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, if you, but if you think about McLaren in the context of hip-hop, when he goes to the sure. Bronx River House projects and sees Africa Bambata and goes, ha-ha, okay. Mm. And mm. so Michael Holman, who takes him there, puts together a review. They support Bow Wow Wow. That becomes his new thing. Yeah. If you think about his, what did the um, ethnic music forgeries? That was somebody's, was it Eno or one of those people? But his investigations into what will become world music. But most importantly now, his acceptance and understanding that the ballroom scene of New York of the mid to late 80s would actually be one of the most powerful musics about gender fluidity right. and identity politics, which are among the ruling, you know, mm. issues of the day. Absolutely. He saw that. Yeah, he yeah. saw that first, just as much yeah. as he did in 8-bit music. I mean, it's interesting, this interview, the one thing he kind of really gets wrong is he 
predicts, he's very optimistic about Europe and very mm. optimistic about Britain's relation. He yes. basically said, because well, the Channel Tunnel had, was just being built at the time this interview takes place. That's right. And he sort of says, everyone's going to go down through the Channel Tunnel and not want to come back to their jobs in England afterwards. I know. <laughs> but they did. But they did, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, by yeah. the mid-90s, there was that whole business about being pro-European. Yes. You know, I wrote that book about the face... And there's those issues, which are, it comes from Nick Logan's mod thing, yeah, yeah. but it's acceptance of looking towards yeah. Europe rather than America. No, I think that's right. But it's also, it's the viewpoint of a metropolitan sophisticate. You know, I mean, it, it fails to understand what the rest of the country is like. So re- listening to that in the light of what's happened the last kind of three years, was 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 slightly saddening. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because he was he was generally quite optimistic about the future. Yeah, there was another piece that he talked about in the mid nineties. I think he was really infused because he was back from LA. I'm interested to know when that 1989 recording was made. Exactly when John Tobler made it. Because I did ask him, and I couldn't get an exact date. And he doesn't really talk about the the, well, the album no he, he doesn't talk about any product as such at all he wasn't but he, he was supposed to be promoting Walt's darling but in fact what he was trying to do was find his father oh really he found in august 1989 and that's another key thing to understanding mclaren is that they've been separated for 42 years and so he'd never had the father figure. He'd been the indulged, indulged and rejected. You know, how bad is that? Yeah, yeah. You're really caught in the shit there. Mm. But then he finds his father and tries to form a relationship with him. And so by the mid-90s, he's very much changed as a person. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, like I said, I'm, it's, a, it's a great interview. We're going to play a clip at the end, which actually I love, where he talks about how there are no gods. I mean, in terms of popular yeah. culture, there are no gods anymore. The it seems impossible for another Elvis or whoever to emerge. And as always, I mean, as you would self say, I'm so sure, Paul, is that however much bullshit and bluster he can go in for, there's a core truth, a lot of what he talks about, there are really strong core truths. I'm sure it's absolutely fascinating read, Paul. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, The the Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren, published this week by Constable and Robinson. So don't rush out and get it, but rush out (laughs) virtually and get it. Yeah, order it. Have it delivered with Marigold Glass. Where do we order it from? Well, Hive is very good. If you don't want to use Amazon, it's available there. The Kindle is available today now across, across the world. But, you know, I'd check out the local bookshop yeah. and see if they're still with us, that, that, whether they're delivering. Yeah, that's a great idea. Support Absolutely. Those guys, right? Spot on. That Spot on. fantastic. Great stuff. We always say at this point, Paul, as you probably know, stick around. In this case, I'm saying, please don't leave the Zoom meeting. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on to talk about some people that we've lost. And we'll also talk about highlights among the new library editions. Just pitch in whenever you... Whenever the spirit moves you, my friend. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And at this point, we, we're going to talk um, about Bill Withers. I mean, no sooner had we finished recording the podcast last week than we learned that the beloved Bill had passed away, not as a result of the coronavirus, heart complications. He was 81. I mean, he was old, wasn't he, Mark, when he came into the game? I rewatched the Still Bill documentary the night that he died. And he says exactly the same thing. He's, you know, he was already, he was, what, 31 when he released his first record? Something like that. I think he was 33, like he might have been 33. Yeah, yeah. But he said he, even then he was, in a sense, old. He had been working stiff all his life. He knew about 
all of that sort of thing. You know, I just love him. I'm a huge fan. I thought it was very interesting that when John Prine died, we'll mention John Prine briefly in a minute, but when he died and when Bill Withers died, the response of my American Facebook friends and my British Facebook friends, my British Facebook friends, yes, would nod to John Prine's death, but absolutely mourned Bill Withers, even though Bill Withers hadn't made a record since, what, 1986? And the Americans were the exact opposite. They were worshipping John Prine as a, as, as a songwriter. I mean, I think that people don't appreciate, a lot of people don't appreciate how great a songwriter Bill Withers was. He's a songwriter in the same way as, let's say, a Jackson Brown would be a songwriter or name any of the West Coast singer-songwriters, you know. Yeah. And people don't, some people, I think a lot of Americans struggle to recognise black artists as being songwriters. I think it's just the gap in their sort of way of perceiving the music. I mean, you put your finger on something that's, I think, really pertinent about Bill. And I remember buying, I, mean, I was quite young, but I bought the Carnegie Hall live album. Yeah, yeah. Album, oh, it's amazing. Fantastic. Fantastic record. And I do remember thinking at whatever age I was, you know, this isn't Marvin Gaye. This isn't, you know, this isn't Smokey Robinson. I don't know exactly who this guy is. He looks yeah, yeah. like he's sitting there on a stool with an acoustic guitar and there's kind of congas. And it feels, he's, he's clearly like a singer-songwriter, even if I didn't have that term for him. But I still remember just that, just listening to Use Me, which I think is the yeah. opening, and then he goes back into it and the crowd goes crazy. One more time. One more time. One, two, one, two. course just the, the most it, it, it's still absolutely devastating his introduction to grandma's hands and and oh the song God. itself you know and also his extraordinary thing of he, he walked away and yeah. again watching the documentary the contempt with which he was held by the people who had signed him to was it columbia after yeah, after the yes, after yeah. the sussex record thing where they just perceived him as an r&b act who could be manipulated and had songs given to them. And, and this guy, Rolling Stone, ran an interview with Bill, and they get in touch with the A&R guy, who really kind of made his life a misery in Columbia. And, he's, and this guy says, well, the problem was is that Bill didn't have a manager who would tell him what to do. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> you, 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 you know, I, I think one of the thing, key things about that act, of just walking away, is that it shows great dignity. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That, yeah. I think that that's one of the things that really marks him out. It's a really recognisable aspect of his music and his life and his work and personality is that it's got fantastic dignity. You were talking about live at Carnegie Hall. I mean, it's just stunning the sophistication, yes. yeah. dignity yeah. and standing that he exudes. What, what is extraordinary is how certain people, at the very, very beginning, he was going around with his demo tape around Los Angeles. The next thing you know, he's in the studio with Booker T producing it with the likes of Stephen Stills and a lot of great session players playing on it. Apparently, he says himself again in the Swirling Stone too, that Graham Nash came down to the studio and sat down opposite him and said, you don't know how good you are. That a lot of people really glommed on to Bill Withers as like, this guy is really serious talent. And that's when he, was, he came from nowhere. 
Yeah, yeah. Making lavatory seats for 747s or whatever it is doing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Jasper, you're a big, you're a fan of vintage American soul music. Yeah, you know, definitely. Era. I mean, what's, what, what, how do you hear Bill Withers? I mean, I think, I think you're a fan. Aren't you? Yeah, very much so. I, I really love the sound of his music, yes, but his songs, they're beautiful, beautiful songs. They're yeah. extremely well put together and just really nicely conceptualised as well. Yeah. They have a sort of, a completeness about them yeah. that I think is rare. I mean, he managed to write music that is both touching and it's pretty, but it's not light. It's it's got weight, and I, I it's just, not yeah. cheesy. It's never no, it's cheesy. Not, Even never "Lovely cheesy. Day" isn't isn't. Yeah, cheesy. I mean, how can you write a song called <laughs> "Lovely Day" that's not? <laughs> cheesy? No. It, it, yeah. really, it really is genuine. It's true. Yeah. I think. There's yeah. a truth about what he's yeah. doing. Well, he's the, he's the definition of a gentleman, isn't he? Because he's tough but gentle. Yes, yes. I mean, well, well it, the Still Bill documentary is lovely, and it's really interesting seeing his yeah. relationship with his what was his second wife, who is still mm. together. Yeah. And it was a prickly but brilliant relationship with two adults, and it was really, really good. The other thing, of course, yeah. he had he had a great band behind him. It was basically Charles Wright's What's Hundred and Third Street Band, which was like right. Melvin Dunlap on bass, James Gadsden. James Gadsden. You know, this fantastic was a group. fantastic band. And yet they would play with such restraint behind him. And James Gadsden said in an interview, he said, that was the best time I ever had. As a really? Musician. That was yeah, the best right. time I ever had. For me, it's a very valid thing, this great band, because actually probably my very first exposure to the music of Bill Withers was Blackstreet and Dr. Dre, No Diggity which samples grandma's hands. And that's probably the first time I heard that music yeah, yeah. group and kind of right. went, oh, hang on, what is this? You know, I want to hear the original. Yeah. and then, But then to hear the voice and it kind of comes together in that way. But actually what attracted me to it first and foremost was that really tight, really understated, really low-key and brilliant band. Yeah. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand With the homies Black Street and Teddy The original rough shakers Shutting down, good lord Baby got them open all over town you got to hope he made a fortune out of that you song. Hope, you hope, right? I mean, he said he was comfortable. He was comfortable with He life. was comfortable because he wrote at least five hit records hit yeah. songs i mean massive hits you know. and he invested in property as well he had a lot of property in los angeles he was smart and i mean that came through so clearly in still bill i mean i went i remember watching that with this idea in my head of bill being a, a bit bitter and curmudgeonly and he wasn't at all no. he was a man of great dignity and humility actually yeah. i mean the, the other thing is that not to overstate it I think you no. Know, I think he suffered from depression. I think it was a part of his makeup and his life. You, you know, not to make too much of a point of it, but I think you know. I don't, I don't think his life has been necessarily as straightforward as we'd like to sort of portray it. But he he come through that and seemed to be very much at peace with himself as where he is from and so on yeah. and so forth. You know. Jasper, should we hear a, should we hear a little clip? We thought as part of what we're featuring on the homepage in tribute to Bill is just about a minute from Bill Domain's 2004 phone interview with him. And you really get a, a sense of everything we've just been saying about the man. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away I'm 65 now. 
friends of mine are starting to like just die and nobody really asks why, you know what I mean? Well, they died, you know what I mean? And so they, I'm at the age of mortality or at least thinking about it. And sometimes I think like, you know, if I don't organize this stuff and do something with it, you know, somebody will probably come in here after I'm dead and, you know, th- 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 throw it in the trash can. I hope not. <laughs> so the one thing that I'm starting to realize is, uh, and I'm always flattered when, you know, when somebody likes you, you know, calls and we have a conversation because it causes me to think about times when I was a different guy. Mm-hmm. In other words, that guy in his 30s that did most stuff that people bring up to me now that guy's gone, man. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And she's always gone too long. Anytime she goes away. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tremendous wisdom. Um, yeah. That guy's gone. <laughs> he's when well, he's gone. That, that guy's gone. I don't think he did regret leaving i think you know no. what we were saying just now is like he chose his moment yeah. and he had said what he wanted to say in that idiom and he and he left it and i think that's a great thing to be able to do it's very neat in the, in the documentary they sort of illustrate it by having him one of his last i guess very late tv appearance and it's these two very sort of 80s chicks kind of like pretending to sing backing vocals and sort of dancing behind him and he looks so uncomfortable you know, this uh-huh. is not who he is. You know, it's anyway. Barney, who are you want anyway? To talk about? Well, we, we should just briefly mention two musicians who we have lost to the virus in the past few days. One of them, John Prime, we did actually talk fairly extensively about when we featured an audio interview with him just a few weeks ago, but he had been in pretty poor health anyway for a number of years, battles with cancer, etc. So it wasn't the biggest surprised to learn that he had succumbed to mm-hmm. COVID-19. Nonetheless, a really sad loss, a unique songwriter, a prince of a guy. And we're featuring a great interview that Holly Gleason did with him in 2016. It's a great interview where she asks him about many of the great songs on that first album. But we're also saying goodbye to the extraordinary Hal Wilner. Hard to sum up this guy's career other than to say he's kind of the king of what you might call the alternative tribute album. He put together some of the most fascinating tribute records that that anybody's done in the last, I guess, 30 years. The most extraordinary perhaps being the Disney album, Stay Awake, where he got a very eclectic bunch of people to do famous songs from Disney movies, like Aaron Neville doing the Mickey Mouse March and (laughs) Ringo Starr singing When You Wish Upon a Star. Didn't he also get Sun Ra to do Pink Elephants on Parade? Exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty inspired combination. I've never, I've never, I want to go and listen to it now I've heard of it, but... But I think I think that was the key to him as well, was that long before it became a kind of industry trope to get surprising people to do yes. surprising covers. You know, he was a master of that juxtaposition. Yeah, he was the pioneer. Where you take that, you know, a really well-known song, get somebody surprising to do it, and out of that comes something yeah, yeah. new. Yeah, completely. Anyway, we've got a few interviews on the site. Not many, because he's one of those backroom people that isn't generally talked to. But 
it, it's very interesting reading him talking about what he does and also his relationship with the artist. Oddly, he was loved by the people who worked with him, but he did. He made very few records as a producer of standalone artists, didn't, didn't I mean, he made a few. He did a few, he did a few like Marianne Faithful, for example, yeah. who apparently is also ill with, with, with the fire. Yeah, so I've heard. But I mean, throughout all of this, he was also the, the chief music supervisor on Saturday Night Live. I mean, that was his big pay and gig. Right. All these were sort of bus man's holidays. It's nice we were able to feature a piece that Stephen R. Rosen just sent us, which really explains how great Hal Wilner was. It's called Hal Wilner and the Creation of the Modern Tribute Album. It's an interview that Stephen did with him for LA City Beat in 2004. So that's free on the homepage. So that's everything that's free. And Mark, you're now going to talk us through some of the stuff that ain't free. <laughs> well, again, our new writer, who I'm thoroughly enjoying, including Ivor Davis, the Daily Express West Coast correspondent. He, Nancy Sinatra's just had a big hit with those feats are made for walking. She says, when my father first heard the record, he turned up his nose and told me, great tune, but the voice stinks. Ouch. Dad. What I didn't know is he had a single out at the time himself. And he was clearly really pissed off because her record was selling a lot more than his was. And I bet it was better than his too. Well, at that time, <laughs> that's a great record. These boots are made for walking. And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Moving forward to 72, Melody Maker. Lorraine Altman talking to Bill Graham. This is the movie of the last days of the film or just come out. So she interviews Bill Graham, who's, of course, the, the legendary promoter of the Fillmore's East and West and many other venues and so on and so forth. And Bill Graham is a great sort of He's New York, boastful New York guy, you know, with a kind of interesting backstory, a Holocaust survivor and so on and so forth. And he says, nothing is close to the film all. Nothing will ever be close. It's staggering what it was. And I say it as Bill Graham, or if I weren't Bill Graham, you know, <laughs> I just love it. I mean, I, there's something kind of brilliant about Bill Graham, how, however sort of just preternaturally aggressive he was with everyone. Yeah, great, excellent. Kind of kind of relating to what we've just been talking about with Paul. Sid Vicious, a rocky lifestyle played out to extreme end by Joel Selvin for the San Francisco Chronicle in 18th February 1979. Essentially an obit. But it's also an American writing about British punk, mm. which is always quite, not amusing, but it's, they sort of don't get it in a way. It took another, what, dozen years to get it. Yeah, I, th I, I, th I think that's right. I mean, individuals did, but certainly the American music press just scratched their head over the whole thing. He says, epitaph for a punk. Even for a somehow not too surprising drug overdose death at age 21, Sid Vicious already scrawled his name indelibly in the annals of rock. By riding over the high side for one final time, however, Vicious assured his place in posterity as a genuine rock and roll myth, a man who lived a fantasy born from the blackboard jungle. Although his musical skills were negligible, Vicious played out his rough and tumble rock and roll lifestyle to its most extreme, in many ways, most romantic end. Paul, what do you think about <laughs> hmm. yeah. Paul, comment. I think he's making some very good points there, actually, yeah. because, you know, he was the ultimate fan of Superstar, and he also was enormously charismatic. I don't think he was a very nice person. I met him a few times. The last time was really sad because he, he and Nancy Spungen fell out of a cab in Swiss Cottage 
going to a notorious drug dealer's den in one of those big tower blocks on Adelaide Road. Yeah, yeah. And me and my friend literally had to help them to the door. <laughs> they could not stand up. Oh, God. And the first time I met him, he threatened me and a group of friends quite aggressively. And it was there that my friend George Christodoulou said, here's a tip when we get into this situation, get your keys and put one between <laughs> your and I actually did that because I thought we were going to get a pasty. Right. So I had various different experiences of Sid. But I think that he was, uh, McLaren's ultimate aim really was to elevate the audience beyond the rock star. Yes. Whether it's Mick Jagger or Johnny Rock. Yeah. And he, in some ways he succeeded. But I think, you know, Sid was also a very troubled kid. I know people who were quite close to him. And, you know, he had a very, very sad upbringing. Yeah. And there was only kind of one way he was going to go with or without McLaren. Sure, sure. There's something weird about this idea of his posterity in the annals of rock and all that stuff when <laughs> that couldn't be further from what punk is all about, really. Punk, yeah. posterity. But this is kind of interesting, as you say, American sort of approach to trying to, trying to contextualise this rock and roll concept with regards to Sid Vicious. I think that that's what they do because mm. they're myth makers. Americans, you know, live the great myth, yeah. whatever it is. And here is somebody who is, you know, you can easily draw him. His silhouette is recognisable. Yeah. And so, you know, he's a great myth. That's a really interesting point, Paul, because what we were talking about earlier about Malcolm McLaren lamenting that there were no gods. One of the problems I find reading in my job, the American music press from the 80s through the 90s, is they want to create them. So they're wildly overhyping or sort of like inflating people who within five years appear to be kind of relatively mediocrity. But it's interesting, isn't it, that I think one of the greatest pieces on the Sex Pistols is by Timothy, oh, you, you guys will remember his name, Rock is Dead and Living in London. It's a double image cover of Rolling Stone from October 1977. And he gets fantastic access to everybody hangs out with them all. And he really kind of understands what this was about because he ends by saying, you know, in the love and peace California vibes of Southern California, kids, you know, damaged high schools to the tune of $6 million this, <laughs> this term. And so McLaren and the Pistols are tapping into an anger which is there. Right. Right. And so I, th I think that sometimes they, you know, that distance can lend insight. Sure, sure. Moving to 83, Enemy, Anine K, Ridging Gang of Four. It's a very amusing interview because she's, I think she's a very funny writer. I like her stuff a lot. I wish we had more of her stuff on the site. But John King says, obviously we, what we wrote was political and we still have that thing, but we got fed up with being treated like evangelists. Which I find interesting because my problem with... So many of those post-punk bands is being given political lectures. And I really felt that, especially, well, Gang of Four particularly, that they were wagging their finger at you and you had to sort of mm. go along with their, their sort of thing. And him to say they were kind of fed up with that. Well, you know, shouldn't have done it so much <laughs> in the first place, mate. You know? <laughs> Moving on to 85, Richard Williams sees Chet Baker play Ronnie Scott's in London. This is the Times. And he says, in Walkin, a medium-tempo blues, his phrases tap-dance through agile variations, a light staccato contrasting with plush smears. Sometimes his languid inventions hung in the air like smoke, drifting on the sensitive breezes supplied by the piano of John Haller, the double bass of Lenny Bush and the drums of Tony Crombie. I just like that as a piece of writing. I went to those gigs. Yeah? I think he played a residency there, sure. and there was a fantastic booker 
I don't know whether it was Pete King or whoever was mm. at Ronnie Scott's, but he also booked Nina Simone, who I've been going to see since the mid-70s. Right. She, uh, they released them on video. There were a whole series mm. of videos. It was Chet Baker, Nina Simone, and a couple of others. Fantastic. And they were really... I mean, if there was that kind of ghoulish thing about Chet Baker yeah, sure. at the same time, because he looked so unbearably hip. <laughs> but, but he was that sort of... Um, chimerical you know the presence yeah. and the music really poured through him yeah no i mean that's, that's lovely to hear that i mean richard williams in this piece talks about the sort of comparisons unfair but to miles davis is that he talks about how miles davis said that sometimes the softer i play the more intense i get sort of thing and and, uh, and he sort of applies that to being very nice i, mean, I love richard williams writing I mean, he actually writes yeah. about music in a way that very few people can um, and I, I love that that's my lot Barney Jasper Jasper Rooney. I've just got two pieces I want to mention, actually. One of which I think ties in sort of in a not direct but interesting way to what we were talking about with regards to Malcolm McLaren. And that is the piece that I added for 2003, which is an interview with So Solid Crew. And that's Angus Beatty interviewing for The Times. And it's an interesting interview because at this point, So Solid Crew are about to release their second album, which I think most people didn't necessarily expect them to, to get to because a number of them had been arrested for <laughs> violent conduct and owning guns and blah, 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 blah. And so it's an interview mostly with the leader of So Solid crew, Dwayne Megaman Vincent, who says, a lot of people will look at So Solid and say, they're a cause of their own problems. Maybe we are, but who cares? We don't. We're here to do music. In So Solid, we have all the tools. We have the talent, the looks, the attitude, the get-go. And we have the fan base. With the first album, more people logged onto our website per month than Westlife's. And the numbers should have grown because people who've never heard our music have seen us on the news. And I just think it ties in with that age-old all publicity is good publicity yeah, yeah. strategy that, that McLaren and the Sex Pistols also used. And I think, you know... It's also music as community, you know. This absolutely. is expressing those people who are ignored by polite society mm-hmm. and wider society. And so in the same way that Soul to Soul really had to push themselves forward and organise their own nights at the Africa Centre yeah, yeah. or something like that. You really got that sense from So Solid Crew that they were also demonised by the race. Oh, yes. oh absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Tabloid press as well. There were a lot of very talented people in I, I'm One problem they have was a bit like Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang managed to deal with it better, is that the larger your grouping is, the more inherently chaotic it becomes. Yeah. And they really, they really suffered from that. Also, they were a really difficult bunch. A friend of mine, Jamie, runs... That used to run Britannia Rose Studios. He had them in for two months. They didn't pay their bill. You know that was yeah. kind of the way they rolled. And they were they were a difficult bunch of people to deal with. Having said that, I think that a lot of the big grime artists in the last eight years, for example, I think looked at what So Solid did wrong, and and took cues as how to actually do yeah. their stuff yeah. without kind of falling to some of the traps that So Solid fell into. And they did make some interesting records as yeah. well oh, yeah. I mean, for that period of time. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting interview. The other piece is a 2018 review of Prince's Piano and a Microphone, which I think is the first review we're adding of that album, which is one of my absolute favourite Prince albums. And I just, I absolutely love, and it's a nice piece by Dave Simpson in The Guardian, 
And it highlights something that we've actually talked about before. I don't know if on the podcast or not, but Mark, you and I have certainly talked about this, about Prince's piano yeah, playing. Yeah. Prince could play most instruments, but while his phenomenal talents as a guitarist are all over his catalogue and currently an audible influence on St. Vincent and Janelle Monet, his skills as a pianist are under-recognised, even after his sadly final 2016 piano tour. But he is on fire here. Gospel, classical, funk and jazz ooze from his fingertips at will. So audaciously in the previously bootleg cold coffee and cocaine, you suspect the guy could have played Chopin on a watering can. <laughs> <laughs> I just think Great it's wonderful. Choice. And, I, and it's, it's a you know, nice bit of writing and an absolutely wonderful album. I, mean, it's, I, I just think it's peak print. Beautiful. I think it's very good. I mean, have I listened to it much? I can't, can't pretend I have. But uh, as a piano player, I've adored him. Uh, I think that my first real exposure was his How Come You Don't Love Me Anymore, which is just him mm. at a piano and piling up his heart, vocal harmonies on top of himself. And he, he's a terrific piano player. He's always such a great musician all around. You know, it's, it's just astonishing. Yeah, I've actually listened to it a great deal since it came out. Yeah. And it's, it really stands up, which is remarkable, given it's basically like a one take, sat down at a piano, played a bunch of stuff. It was never supposed to be released. And to then get to hear that, I think there's something really special about that. Cool, cool. Cold coffee and cocaine. Exactly. Yes. Get me now. Great. Well, I think that's a lot, isn't it? It's just been terrific. You know, we're still getting used to this new mode of recording the podcast. It's slightly surreal, but it's really nice that we've been able to make it happen. Thank you very we much. We all wish you the best of luck with the McLaren book and all your future projects. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's been a gas, you know. Well, thanks for coming. Well, in, in the absence of a sort of global book tour, this this may have to do. <laughs> presumably going to be able to promote the book in the way that you would have been able to. Yeah, but I think there's always ways and means. And actually what we found is that because a lot of authors delayed their titles to the autumn. Yeah. And I, I didn't I didn't want to do that because we got various media locked in. It's also the 10th anniversary of his birthday. Yeah. And this afternoon I'm recording the script for a Radio 4 documentary, which will go out at 8 o'clock on April the 25th on Radio 4. Oh, cool. So, you know, for all those reasons, I wanted to get the book out yeah. there. Yeah. And actually what we're finding is that people are ordering it. We're getting Great. much more orders than we anticipate. Well, Super. we haven't got much else to do. And so they, they should... Now's the time to read an 860-page <laughs> book. 860 pages, that's yeah. quite something. 860 pages. Wow. I'm going to get it for my Kindle instantly. I'm afraid I'm a Kindle user. Good, good for you. I, I, good I know you. that I won't, won't see any pictures. Well, you do get the pictures. No, you will do, yes. Yeah, there, are, there aren't that many. They, 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 I shall shake your hand wait, when we next. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sign, 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 don't sign the Kindle. Fantastic. Yeah, really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for coming Very nice to talk to you, chaps. Well, shall we hear from the subject? of your magnum opus to take us out mark yeah malcolm talking about how there are no gods anymore otherwise we'll see you next week have we got a guest next week or we don't know yet who knows in the, in the current <laughs> climate i'll come back <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, just just stay there paul <laughs> for the next yeah, seven days yeah. uh, <laughs> thanks for bearing with us through the yeah uh, right. it's been great us. and malcolm take us out Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
there's no characters that live seven lives and act irresponsibly, and we all look back with our mouths open in awe at characters that we once felt were useful archetypes to make us go bump in the night, to make us jump out of bed in the morning, to make us run away from home, to make us step out to believe a culture that could change life. The reason why you have gods like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe and even Sid Vicious, dare I say. Those kinds of gods don't exist anymore. And that's the trouble with the culture. That was Malcolm McLaren in conversation with John Tobler in 1989, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Paul Gorman. Stay at home and buy his new book, The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. And then check out his website, paulgormanis.com, for details about his other books. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. 